Sure. Um, and so, imagining that at least a, at least a part of track one has been playing along, I think I don't. I still don't know yet. I'll have to see after it's done if I can fit how many full tracks I can fit in. But I sure don't mind having it be a taste, and then that hopefully only drives people even more to go get the album. You know. Yeah. No, that's fine. Uh, uh, so, so if we did that Campbell that Campbell's farewell to Red Gap uh, set that it opens with. I'd probably play it right up until stuff like starts taking off um, when it when it scoops into um, into this the is it the second tune Carmichael gal that's it yep with the fiddle coming in yes yes so as that kind of scoops in then I'll start kind of fading it out and we'll come into the conversation and 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 speaking of that tune um, like far be it for me Tim to make any sort of like declaration about your musical career of course but for me when the first time I listened to this album this first track just felt like kind of like magic. It felt kind of like think something was coming full circle. And mm. I certainly don't mean that to say, Oh, this is Tim's last album. Don't let it be please. Um, <laughs> but something seemed like it was coming full circle. And I was thinking about why that is. And I think it's because the very first, I think the first I ever heard you play was a set you did at squeeze the bag in 2010 or 2011. Mm. There's a video of it on YouTube and you're playing. One of the tunes is Campbell's farewell to red gap. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's probably why in my brain it was like, ah, we've, we've, we've like arrived somehow. Um, huh. did, 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 was that in mind at all? Like how long have you been playing this tune? Is this just a favorite that you had to get on the album or uh, was it, is that by chance? You know, that's a great question. This was one that um, I kind of think at one point I had intended to put it on the previous Appalachian themed album, the, the Piper and the Holler. Yeah. And somehow it, it, it got lost or forgotten or something. And, um, and I was sort of kicking myself for years that I never thought to put that. I was such an obvious contender to put on that album because it is an existing, 
uh, tune in, in the Appalachian tradition and uh, the Scottish precedent, of course, is still very popular. Mm-hmm. Campbell's Farewell to Red Castle. Right, uh, yeah. The two-parted tune. Um, so I've known about this for a number of years, uh, uh, known the tune and learned this Southern version from Pete Sutherland probably around 2006 or seven, somewhere around there. Um, so, but uh, it is, yeah, I had kind of forgotten that I had played that at, um, at Shepherdstown. Uh, that was probably a decade ago now. Yeah, it is. And it's, it's funny that like, I know that um, like, of course, once an artist puts something out there, they don't really have a lot of control about how it interacts with the people who interact with it. Right. Um, right. Well, for, for me, though, that that performance like that's that was my introduction to like up until that performance, me watching that um, all my bagpiping had been very uh, in a way disconnected. Like, um, I mean, I don't mean to say that, like, you can't enjoy the tradition of any other geographical region. And of course, I'm not in the eastern United States either. If we're going to talk about geographical regions. Right. But it mm-hmm. was always music of another land that I'd never visited. Mm-hmm. And that that performance was when I went, hey, this is my music, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so it was a big deal for me. And I listened to it a lot. And honestly, that set kind of lives in my head now. And so it was an immediate connection for me when I listened to track one on this album. Huh. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, it is. It is quite something. Um, uh, those of us here in the U.S. and I suppose Canada, too, and, and other far flung nations that are not the British Isles to be you know, holding on so tightly to these Scottish tunes and these traditions, some of which are contrived or, or distorted or mm-hmm. um, amplified in some way. Exactly. And, and then kind of realizing um, that our own, our own nation has its own tradition or often a plural of them, you know, mm-hmm. multiple traditions. And um, do we have to only play what we're, you know, what has come through, uh, the Scottish side, those of us playing Scottish pipes or for Irish pipers, just the Irish tunes and Irish way of playing. Or is there another option, uh, a way for us to be more ourselves in, in a way? And there is something, I mean, like, I'm all for appreciating other cultures, of course, but there is something special about being, it's, I, it's, the word isn't ownership quite, I don't think, but there's something about, it feels, it's, it's almost like speaking your, your native language, like if you start if, you, if you've been learning a second language and sometimes that makes your brain tired and it just feels really good to settle back into your native tongue, you know? Yes. Yeah, that's a really interesting comparison. I like that a lot. Um, though, you know, depending on how long you've been playing uh, a, you know, in the Scottish tradition for, for people of, you know, playing Scottish pipes, if you've been doing that for decades, to try to uh, kind of undo that or or learn how to speak. Uh, if you've been speaking with a Scottish accent for decades and suddenly you're like, but oh, I, I also have this American accent mm-hmm. that I can use to kind of to recapture that or, or reconfigure that uh, takes some work and thought. Yeah, yeah actually, so speaking, so this, this, this uh, sort of weird little uh, uh, um, connection that we're making to language and accents, I don't know if let's, riding that train a little further um in that in that opening tune track one that ca- that goes from when it goes from campbell's farewell to red gap into uh carmichael gal that 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 scoop that very fiddly scoop 
uh, mm-hmm. into Carmichael Gal. I really love that, and and um, it's exciting. It sounds really cool. Of course, Pete's really good at what he does. Um, but uh, I, it did make me wonder, like, to what degree did you have to work consciously to make your pipes um, maybe kind of mimic what we might think of as more typical um, Appalachian instruments? And I'm thinking, like, fiddle style, banjo style. Like, uh, were you using tricks to kind of meld your tone or style like feel in with your your uh fellows on this album definitely yeah and it took a lot of um i logged a lot of hours of playing these tunes and sort of developing these tunes with pete um and just playing them over and over again with him Mm. um and then we brought brad in later who we knew would just catch on in in three seconds and of course he did yeah um but for me to kind of and and we had already started this process you know, 10 years ago with the Piper and the Holler, uh, Pete playing on that, though he played mostly banjo on that album. Yeah. But it already started this journey, but I felt like I never quite figured out all the little things that uh, I needed to do to really get the pipes to sound with the, a more authentic American accent or Appalachian accent in yeah. that way. Um, and it took a, some reinventing of um, grace note patterns or or, or maybe more... Uh, rather where I place the grace notes in the tune, putting them on the offbeat rather than on the downbeats as we would in, in Scottish music. But the scoops for sure, uh, which you hear in Irish music and every so often in, in Scottish piping, um, but it's definitely a Southern feature. Um, and yeah, finding ways, finding those little tricks, uh, even the little melodic patterns that are just more endemic to the Appalachian tradition. Yeah, actually, tell me, I wonder if this is one of them, because I noticed that in um, Donnie's in the Slop, a- as well as Money Musk, there's this sort of like seesaw pattern that happens. In one of them, it's like E-A-D-A, 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 and the other one's like E-A-C-A, E-A-C-A, um, that sounds really fun, and when I try mimicking it on my ch- on my chanter, it feels really fun, it feels like really physical. And yeah, I, I thought, man, it feels almost like a bow going back and forth, you know, when a fiddler like lifts their hand and drops it, you know, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. What I think might be happening in tunes like that and those um, uh, those sorts of um, uh, melodic patterns or even implied harmonies. So you have a, a kind of A major chord being spelled out between the A, the C sharp, right. and the E. That's a very easy thing to play on the fiddle, I think, uh, and fairly easy on the pipes, too. Yeah, for someone just... who knows how to play the fiddle anyway, right? Exactly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, and the banjo, if, if you know how to play the banjo, and your banjo is tuned in to play in that key. Yeah. Um, so uh, the other thing, you know, it, it's the ease of the Southern feathers playing for dances or anyone playing for dances. You learn that you have to play tunes over and over and over again, often at very high speed. And so you're looking for very efficient ways to um, play the tunes. And often that can change the tune a little bit, like... Actually, be so much easier if I play this note instead of that other jumpy one over there, and and it just streams line 
it'll streamline things um, better that way. So fiddlers are doing a lot of that, especially the really fast hoedowns. They're looking for ways to streamline things and, and the tunes kind of evolve that way, I suspect. The other thing that's probably happening is just a musical thing where you have um, notes that ring and harmonize really well in the fiddle with the open strings, the A and the E, and put a C sharp in the middle and it's just a very nice major chord. And um, since so much of music is about tension and release, you have to have some tension, so you kind of find a different chord that might create a little tension or a different um, tuning, possibly, uh, somewhere in there, or uh, like a G major chord. We do this a lot on pipes. We play A major notes, A, C sharp, and E, and then we go to G major notes, G, B, and D. And we go back and forth, and that creates this tension and release with the drone. And it works with the fiddle too, with their open strings ringing or droning strings as well. So I have a feeling both of those are at play uh, for tunes like that. Uh, you mentioned uh, Donnie's in the Slop being uh, possibly Cape Bretony. Um, man, I I have I have been uh, ignorant of so many so many piping traditions. Um, uh, only recently did I finally figure out that I had often been confusing Cape Breton with uh, with um, with Brittany in terms of their piping traditions. Aha. Uh-huh. A, a fiddler friend of mine. We were we were talking about Cape Breton fiddling, and I kept I kept bringing up things that I thought were pertinent, and she was like, "No, that's that's, uh, that's the other side of the ocean." I was like, "Oh man, now I see. Now I see what I've been getting wrong." The name is conf- the Breton. The word Breton is very confusing. Yeah, uh, and I, you are not alone in in having had that confusion at all. Well, and I'm still not sure I could always sort stuff out by ear, but it has been fun. Um, Jeremy King, Kingsbury over at the Way Too Twag uh, Bagpipes and History podcast uh, to finish out the most recent season. Um, he had like this mixtape where he just would play music from other artists and then talk about it. And he had, um, he had a, a, well, okay, so two things. He, he, he interviewed a Cape Breton piper. Um, now, now I'm nervous, so I can't remember his name. <laughs> But uh, it was really interesting, um, really fun to listen uh, to. Barry Shears, Barry was it? Barry Shears, it was. Yep. yep. That was him. Really great interview. I listened to that one a few times just because it's so fun to hear him talking about a tradition that was like, what? I was like, he talked about like like piping interacting with like um, uh, like First Nations people uh, uh-huh. having to fiddle. And, and just like this, I mean, this is what, I mean, it's so much of what's exciting about this album as well, right? The transatlantic movement of music and, and uh, you know, different genres mo- working together and stuff like that. It's uh, the new synthesis that comes out of them and stuff, you know? Exactly. And, and uh, there's no stopping that sort of that, you know, the, the musicians hearing something from another tradition and saying, oh, man, I want to try that. And, and it's just inevitable that you get these. Uh, these combinations and these yeah. fusions that in some cases will become their own tradition uh, and certainly is the case with Cape Breton, but Appalachian music for sure with the, the influence mostly of the traditions from the enslaved Africans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And actually um, maybe, maybe we should hop over to that real quick. Uh, is it, is it only a problem on my side of the Mississippi that people say Appalachia? Um <laughs> No, uh, not at all. Um, uh, both pronunciations are fine. Um, 
in that the people who are from that region more often pronounce it Appalachia, like I'm going to throw an apple at you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, I think I, um, even though I was born in Tennessee, we left when I was fairly young, and we were up north for a little while and then down to central Florida. And I think for much of my youth, I, I wound up saying Appalachian. And it wasn't until I kind of began to pay more attention to the tradition that I heard more and more people in the tradition using that pronunciation. And it sounded kind of remotely familiar to me, and I've, I've readopted that. Yeah. Yeah, I, um, I remember PBS did a documentary about the, the people of, of Appalachia years ago. And I remember hearing a lady talk about that pronunciation, and she said, go ahead and say it however you want. Yeah. But she related it to, uh, if you were in Ireland, if you were to call the city uh, Derry or Londonderry, she said, in one word, you're going to tell whoever you're talking to if they can trust you. <laughs> and so she said, oh. <laughs> if, you want, if you want people who live there to trust you, you're going to say Appalachia. Huh. And if you say Appalachia, they know a lot about you in just yep. one word. <laughs> That's a really good point. Yeah. Well, um, and also, by the way, I, I, I really appreciate sort of like like uh, sort of like word crafting and the uh, the explanation that you give. And I'll link to it in the show notes for anybody who wants to read when you're describing the the, the album and how it came apart, came, came, came together. Um, you, you mentioned it was uh, an Appalach Appalachification of many tunes. <laughs> Absolutely. And you use the word transmogrification, which I, I know exists in dictionaries, but I don't know of anybody who uses that word who hasn't met <laughs> Calvin and Hobbes. And so I've got to assume that you've enjoyed some Calvin and Hobbes. <laughs> uh, you're completely accurate with that. And I did Google to see uh, if that was really a legitimate, legitimate word. And yeah. uh, when I discovered that it was, I thought, well, how can we not use this? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Appalachification might be something uh, newer in the lexicon. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I like it, and we've got we've now got a bunch of subjects to to apply it to all these all these excellent tracks. Um, oh yeah, but that that was the thing that uh, that Jeremy had mentioned in one of his in one of his episodes. He played a a track of a Scottish fiddler playing Strathspey on the fiddle, mm -hmm. and for the that's the first time I've ever heard a Strathspey on anything that wasn't bagpipes. Hmm. And it was almost an existential crisis for me because I've been playing Strathspeys on my bagpipes for like fifteen years, hmm. and in one moment I went we shouldn't even be trying like this is mm. a form meant for the fiddle. It obviously <laughs> like yeah. developed on the fiddle. Why are we even trying to do this with the bagpipes? Um, I, but I think good pipers can do it well. And that's part of what I loved about this album. I think there the, you, you clearly pushed your small piping style further into the realm of like sharing things with the instruments you were bouncing the sound off of. Um, like, it's not like it's a bagpipe album with accompaniment. You know, right. it's, it's a yep. banjo album and it's a fiddle album and it's a pipe album and they all work together in very equal ways, which I loved Piper in the Holler, still do. Some of my favorite tracks are on there. Um, in fact, I've got the LP cover hanging on my wall as wall art because I like the wow. cover so much. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Don't want to make you feel uncomfortable or anything, but I like it that much. <laughs> um, so it's nothing against that album when I say that like it feels like that album was already magic, but this album, The Bird's Flight, pushes that magic even further like it, it refines what the what the piper in the holler was going for even more and kind of like finds the spot you know what i mean yeah well i'm glad uh, it, it's uh very encouraging to hear hear you say that because that was kind of our goal was to try to make this really really click really work um 
and we don't have we haven't had the benefit of you know hundreds of years of these three instruments all playing together and sort of evolving together and the music evolving to match that and mm. uh, paired with the dance tradition as well you know all of that mixed together and in some ways the language mm. uh, it's very hard to separate those three and in, in an established tradition um, so to to be bringing the pipes and just sort of plugging them in suddenly um, and to do that gracefully uh, or tastefully is is took some work um, and I'm sure there's plenty of room for improvement still but um, one thing you could you could say well there's the disadvantage of the pipes not you know evolving with Appalachian fiddling styles so that they weren't together or with the banjo for for a couple hundred years mm -hmm. that said I think in some ways the fiddle uh, kept some bagpipiness about it the, the, uh, in Appalachia um, since so much of that tradition is from the British Isles um, that droniness uh, some of the modality of, of pipe tunes has has always been there always been present so the pipes in a way have been there just not physically uh, as an instrument um, do you feel like with the banjo though too the and maybe it's just lucky happenstance but I've, I've always been really drawn to that claw hammer style mm -hmm. and and it, it certainly seems like we we hear plenty of that um on the album um brad seems to be real good at, at whatever he's doing it sure sounds nice if i knew more banjo i might be able to say what it is i don't know what it is but it sounds real nice <laughs> yeah he's um, he's superb yep uh, but you, it, it feels like there's some 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 of that drony quality going on there as well, and maybe that's part of what makes the the blend of the three uh, work so well is that everybody can kind of drone. Yeah, uh, for sure. And on the banjo, it's a it's a well, in the fiddle too. And I think this is partly why I I muted the bass drone of my pipes. I didn't ever yeah, use a tell bass me about drone. That. that is interesting. The why drones. Do you, why do you think that works so well. Uh, I think it just to sort of maybe better match that high lonesome sound as they call it um the fiddle does not have any low drones the banjo does not have any low drones um right the fiddle doesn't even drone and it's the highest string on there huh yes exactly um if you think of the lap dulcimer there are no low drones in that so a lot of the the instruments that are endemic to the tradition don't have low notes even much less a low drone mm. um so it just felt out of place to have a bass drone going uh, for this album and uh, in fact whenever I play southern style music now I tend to not include the bass drone uh, and also that can get a little muddy that can conflict with the lower notes of the banjo sometimes mm. um, so it just kind of gives some room for those low notes of the banjo to to be heard a bit better yeah to, to speaking of letting things be heard a bit better do you feel like part of the Piper's skill in in playing music like this is knowing when not to play because it it seemed to me like um the track where pete is singing um moonshiner mm -hmm. seems like a really strong example where the pipes are there but they're contributing to the overall whole like they're not getting in the way of pete singing you know what i mean and that would be a shame of course <laughs> it's fun to listen to pete sing yeah um yeah and and uh you know in a live setting that gets a little more complicated because in the studio you can control the balance of volume of, of everything and isolate everything and yeah. and have a whole lot of control that way live is a little tougher um thankfully pete has a very strong voice yeah. uh so he can compete with a small pipe channer 
uh, myself, if I'm singing just uh, on my own, I do not have a strong voice or haven't trained it uh, enough to be stronger. Mm. So, um, now where was I going with that question? Um, oh, Pete singing, pipes not playing to get in the way. Right. No, so, not to play, I guess, being a reductionist, maybe. Yeah, or finding ways to not draw attention to the pipe part, even if it is sounding. Mm. Uh, there's the volume aspect, but also not doing too much in terms of changing notes or embellishments that might catch the attention of your ear. Mm. Um, so trying to keep the background supportive and and um, supportive but not distracting. Yeah. Kind of like a movie soundtrack in that way. Enhancing the the emotion of the song, uh, but not actually being heard necessarily, right. consciously. Gotcha. Well, so so we've talked a bit about how things come together. Maybe chronologically, when they came together. You mentioned that track three on the album is maybe the the catalyst tune that um, that brought stuff together. That's hell of a fish. That's it. Yeah. Tell me about. Um, that. Well. Uh, uh, at the risk of giving away the, I love kind of trying to keep some level of mystery for the origin tunes uh, yeah, yep, for, yep. for these tracks. Uh, the the tune from which this one was sourced uh, is a jig and uh, four-parted jig that uh, rhymes fairly closely with Hell of a Fish. Most people will probably be have figured this out already. But the, the fourth part uh, in the original jig, the Scottish jig, has a pretty cool syncopated part that's um, unusual in Scottish music, but it's a tra it's a trad tune. Uh, it's very popular in sessions, um, and I think as I was playing it uh, one day uh, years ago, I just thought, "Golly, that has that offbeat kick that's so prominent in in old time music." Mm -hmm. um, even though it's a jig, and you don't have many jigs in old time music, so what if I turn this into a two two, you know, into a hoedown rhythm? And retain that offbeat kick mm. and that part and really kind of tried to feature that and I made several attempts at doing that and I began to share them with Pete who was not all that impressed and in fact <laughs> the little spark that this tune started kind of fizzled for a year a year <laughs> possibly two years well it, it just wasn't that successful what I had tried to do but for some reason we both felt inclined to try it one more time a year or two later uh, and this time it caught fire and, um, uh, oddly enough, we didn't really 
make heavy use of that offbeat feature that's in the jig. It, yeah. That kind of got smoothed over a little bit in this final version. It's interesting that version. It, would, it would be a thing that gets, gets you thinking in the right direction. But then right, yeah. I, of course, I've never talked to Pete myself. I've only ever listened to his music, but I, I enjoyed reading his rebuttal to your story of the origin of the album, and it made me think, like, this must be one of those guys who just, he's a lovely person, of course, but just doesn't have any reason to sugarcoat anything. <laughs> if he doesn't like it, I'd imagine he'd just say, that's not good. <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, he he can. He can be very diplomatic at times, and yeah. so much so that you actually aren't entirely sure of what he's getting to. Oh, yeah. Uh, but he has a great, great sense of humor, and uh, obviously he's a good writer, yeah. um, and quite a wit about him, and uh, and never wants to take himself too seriously, mm. uh, or any of us, and it's very, very refreshing, and yeah. very much needed in our world. I, I'd like to talk to Pete someday, um, if for no other reason than because I was listening to some of his albums, and this, this takes us off on a tangent. I don't know if you'd even know if you'd have heard it. Uh, he has a track on, uh, uh, which one is his album? can't remember now, but it's called Pioneer Children. Mm-hmm. I was surprised when I saw it because there's a really popular like Mormon children's song here, here in Utah that like any Mormon kid growing up will have sung this song. And huh. I was like, well, no way is that. Because as far as I know, this is where that, that tune or, or originates. You know, it's about the pioneer, the Mormon pioneer kids walking across the plains into Utah. Huh. Um, it is that song. It's huh. that song. Pete does, and Pete turns it into art, too, because, like, I mean, it's kind of like Twinkle Twinkle for me, where, like, you know, kids singing it and you sing it so many times. And it's like, and even the melody of it's like, pioneer children sang as they walked and walked and walked. And, walked. and the old joke is that you just keep going forever and walked and yep. walked. It's not super musically interesting. Pete makes it beautiful. And, and not only did he play, I think he sang too. And I was like, well, now wait a minute. How did this song, how did this uh, song get over there? What's, what's uh, Pete doing with this tune? He, uh, yeah, he, and he paired that with something else. I th- I'm remembering that track. There's he another... Did. And I, I don't remember the origin of that track, but it, it is uh, probably not of, of, you know, British Isles origin. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, but he, um, he, yeah, he has had a lot of influences in, in his musical upbringing and, and um, explorations, a vast, vast array. Um, and uh, there's no telling where he's going to draw inspiration from yeah. or... or um, 
but such a great musician and such a great person. And I bet he would love to chat with you. So, um, and he would have some very, uh, I bet, fascinating things to talk about with you um, in terms of spending a lot of time with a piper. Yeah, uh, it'd be good to get the other side story. Exactly. Right? <laughs> Let's know what what are we like? <laughs> exactly. Because so often I feel like as pipers are like, why won't more people play with me? <laughs> Maybe you could give us some insight. <laughs> uh, yeah, you may not want all the answers to that question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you, Tim, initially going into that tangent, I was like, oh, I'll probably cut this out of the episode later. But so much of my listenership, you know, is, is my local friends. And so they might actually find that little anecdote interesting. I'll put a link to that as well down in the show. Notes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's probably I think I found that on Spotify, that exact track not yeah. that long ago. So, yeah. Uh, well, yeah. let, let me drag us back in with something else that might be, um, maybe this is too much, but you got track six on this album is Macaulay's. Macaulay's, yep. Macaulay's, see, here's, <laughs> this is my, I, do, you, do you read much Tolkien, Tim? Uh, I have I have read Lord of the Rings and loved it. Yeah, uh, but oh, I not, love it too, man. I'm and The Hobbit. But, right now, yeah. Well, fun. Let, take you, take, I'll take you just a little tiny bit deeper for a sec to tell you why this track is special to me. Um, in, in the Silmarillion, one of the one of the minor gods is named Aule, like with, you know, an E with the two dots over it. Ah. That's why I said Macaulay's. I can't help it. Um, it of course, it's spelled differently, but uh, yeah, Macaulay's is what I should be saying, right? Macaulay's? What do you, how did you pronounce it? Macaulay's. Macaulay's. Uh, so yeah, Aule would be, this, you know, Macaulay would be son of Aule, so that totally fits. Yeah, well, uh, and... Aule is one of my favorite of these minor gods in the in the Tolkien um, mythos. Um, he was a maker of things, like just loved making things. Mm. He, he helped make the sun and the moon and even the earth. And he had no interest in possessing anything. He didn't mm. own, he didn't want to own any of the stuff he made. And he was actually the one who created the dwarves. Um, and he made them just because he wanted to have pupils with whom he could share his creations and his crafting knowledge. And mm. and the like superior god, the like father god, if you will. Um, Iluvatar basically was like, okay, tell you what, I'll give the dwarves independent life because I love that you are being a sub-creator, you know, and mm -hmm. so Aule was like, well, thank you so much, and so, but so often dwarves are Scottish, you know, when they're presented, you know, and so it yep. feels like, man, the name Aule is probably more like an anglicized Scotch Gaelic name, which probably, you know, probably comes from Norse tradition or something else, mm -hmm. even further back, but it mm -hmm. feels like so... It feels like my worlds are colliding and mixing together in such a beautiful way, and I can't help like painting mythical images behind this track of Aule creating the sun and the earth. And wow. Thank you. 
that's a bit silly and a bit like kind no. of reaching out farther but that uh, you know that's uh there you go that's again the artist putting something out right and just right seeing how it interacts with the with the listenership that's the whole point of art uh, uh i should not tell you what this track should mean to you at all you have to that that's your well i took over your... and told you what it meant to me so <laughs> i think it's now, great now, now you tell me what's the real story here i actually don't want to at this point almost <laughs> that that's such a beautiful uh a beautiful description a beautiful uh scene that, that you picture that you painted um well the the uh uh we we took a a few different approaches to naming our tunes on this album in some cases we did not change the title of the source tunes in other cases we we did a little tweak to the title um or we did a rhyming thing or changed one name or one word or Mm. something like that all of this um is something that happened naturally in the Appalachian tradition in the, in the past two or 300 years. That, that's all something that's been documented. So mm-hmm. it's not out of step, uh, nor is what we did for this track, naming it uh, after the person uh, from whom I learned the melody from originally, the source melody. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was Scott McCauley, who was um, the director of the College of Piping and Celtic Performing Arts in PEI Canada, mm-hmm. uh, where I spent a year um, almost 20 years ago now, uh, as an artist in residence. So I was both collaborating and doing some teaching there, but also studying with Scott. And uh, uh, the melody that we crafted this waltz from, uh, originally I learned from him, though he did not compose it. Mm, Gotcha. I want to ask you more about that Cape Breton uh, tradition and how much it might have. Does it it have a big fingerprint on this... uh, on this album, because I think I'm thinking of track nine on there. That's a uh, Mackenzie's Mackenzie Creek. Mm-hmm. I think you mentioned that that one um, probably started life as a fiddle tune, and then moved into Cape Breton, and then moved out of Cape Breton, and got changed around. Tell, tell me a little bit about that one. Sure, Mackenzie Creek. Um, I learned that um, again. I'm, I'm withholding giving you the the title tune titles of their the origin tune. But this was originally a Strass bass, so uh, funny that you mentioned uh, yeah. Strass bass on the fiddle. I do believe this tune was originally a fiddle tune because um, its original melodic span was far greater than what mm. the Scottish bagpipe chanter can achieve. Um, and I learned this um, from a friend in Cape Breton who uh, plays both fiddle and pipes. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that he was the one to compress the kind of fold the tune in on itself and, and get it to fit within an octave. Um, somebody did over yeah. there. Uh, and I've always loved the tune. Uh, still a Strass Bay in that form uh, and very pipeable. Mm-hmm. Um, though if you were to hear the fiddle version, you might go, oh, what a cool note. I wish I could play that. And <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of um, cool notes that I wish I can play. Um, Go say say anything you have to say about this tune, and I'll, I'll ask you some hardware questions afterward. Sure. Um, so uh, just to yeah, just to finish on that one. Um, so I've known this as a as a Cape Breton uh, Strass Bay as a pipe tune for for myself, and not many other people have that I know have out of Cape Breton have outside of Cape Breton have known this tune. Mm. But I've taught it to a number of folks at workshops and private lessons and whatnot. Um, but it just seemed like that was one that I started to mess with a little bit and shared it with Pete uh, early in that process of, of Appalachification, and uh, he seemed to really take a liking to it. 
And uh, it was one of those moments where when we brought Brad into the picture and that just had the two of them jam on the tune for a little bit, you realized how sweet that on its own was. And yeah. it didn't really need the pipes anymore. Um, the version that's on this album is pipeable. It does still fit within the octave. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's nice to have a break from the pipes every so often. They're a pretty intense instrument. And so... We didn't want every track to have bagpipes on them all of the time or every track to even have any bagpipes on them necessarily. Um, So this was a great option for just fiddle and banjo playing a tune that was originally Cape Breton, maybe Scottish uh, um, fiddle brought into piping, Scottish style piping, then Appalachified and given back to fiddle and banjo and I, it's one of my favorite tracks in the album. Uh, maybe because I'm not sitting there judging the piper. <laughs> uh, I can just let go and, and enjoy, enjoy the ride. just yank us right back and ask you about hardware i'm pretty sure i'm hearing small pipes and border pipes what what all am i hearing you play on the on these uh on these tracks in this album yep you are hearing small pipes and you are hearing border pipes and uh the border pipes are um fairly typical in terms of what key they're a standard a chanter Mm. um and uh drones uh i did mess with some there are some less conventional drones, and of course, I muted the. I never used the bass drone yeah. uh, for anything in this album, on either bagpipe. The small pipes. Um, I think I used three different small pipe chanters. The the standard one in A, which was used for the Farewell Dundee and Babe of Bethlehem mm-hmm. track, uh, and then a C chanter, and then one even higher, the D chanter, uh, just to kind of shake things up a little bit in terms of. So that every tune was not in A, like sure. a whole album in A yeah. would get pretty monotonous. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm perfectly ready for it to be the case that it's just my own ignorance that has led to me feeling this way. But it seems like the last few years there has been a surge in interest and availab- availability of 
um, interest in and availability of C tunes, tunes set in C and the chanter and drone set up to play in C on small mm -hmm. I feel like until just a few years ago, A and D were the options, and all of a sudden C is like the hot new thing on the scene. Is that just my ignorance, or is that a real thing that's happening? C is the new A, is, is basically. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think, um, yeah, and I'm not very plugged into the Scottish scene right now, but I have been hearing rumors that uh, the C chanter is, is becoming more and more all the rage in Scottish small pipe playing. Mm -hmm. And it makes perfect sense to me uh, uh, in terms of how comfortable it is to, to hold a C chanter. The spacing of the finger holes is really, really, for my hands at least, and I think for a lot of people, yeah. I have pretty average-sized paws. Um, yeah, it's a, a very and D is so tight. I can imagine and C is a really sweet spot there. Yeah. Um, and also for singing, um, for people who want to sing with pipes, mm -hmm. whether it's the piper, uh, him or herself, or uh, someone else, it's it's a more uh, typically accessible range yeah. uh, for singing and uh, it's just a very sweet sound and also maybe since we've just been hearing pipes play in a for small pipes play in a for so long mm. to hear this slightly higher pitch light we might perceive it as being brighter somehow yeah uh, it just it's refreshing yeah um yeah. could be a the same kind of phenomena that keeps driving um uh, competitive pipe band tuning higher and higher and higher and higher <laughs> it could yes i bet it's linked to that too yeah. um, the downside is that it's a little less fun for string players oh yeah um, because once you play in what we think of as d major a tune in the key of d that sounds in the key of f uh, on a c chanter which uh, isn't terrible for string players but they tend to prefer keys that have sharps and not flats and the key of oh, f sure. has a flat and i have to sneeze oh go ahead <laughs> i'll cut it out later no problem. <laughs> you can keep it in if you want something entertaining and gross <laughs> <laughs> it's um, below 17 over there so yeah um yeah i'm getting over a uh what i what might have been a cold or might have been omicron i don't actually know yeah. we tested uh multiple times and it, it was always negative but um very suspicious timing and very suspicious symptoms. So. Yeah. Oh, our household is in the same situation. Everybody's yeah. getting over it. Yep. So I still have the uh, clogged plumbing here. I apologize. You're no, getting a very uh, intimate uh, uh, listen on that plumbing. No, no, no problem. It's it's coming through nice and clean. Now, okay. maybe do you – I wish I knew off the top of my head. What Where's the tune in that you use the C chanter? Um I think Macaulay's is one. Okay. Uh, the very first track, Campbell's Farewell, I think is another. Mm. Let me just double check. We do, um, and you won't have access to this if you did a Bandcamp download, but if you have the physical album or look on the, the album's website, we do list uh, what instruments are played. Oh, I, I apologize. see. I see. No, no problem. Yeah, and I think also, the, 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 digital, the track list <clears throat> will list like who is playing, but yeah, not as much information about which instruments are playing. No, the metadata won't won't have the the really detailed stuff, but the website does, and the album mm. liner notes does. And oh yes, I see. so you'll. S I'm actually looking at the website as we've been talking, so I see that. The other fun thing about this, you know, looking that, you can you can start to see that, not only am I changing what instrument, uh, or what key I'm playing, then the banjo and the fiddle, 
are also changing their tuning patterns on their yeah. with their strings, which is quite a feat. Pete hardly used the same, and and maybe for that matter, Brad as well. They hardly use the same tuning for for two different tracks. Mm. Um, constantly shifting their tuning patterns, and each one has its own personality, um, and uh, but also requires its own mental gymnastics for like what I've always thought of as an A with this position of my ring finger or whatever. Right, yeah. This is now a different note. Yeah. And uh, that takes a lot of mental work to, to, and a lot of muscle memory for that to, to fall into place. Yes, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, that's precisely why so many of your uh, arrangements you provide, uh, even if the, you know, like the organ part, for example, is in, uh, you know, D, um, you provide the, uh, the A, uh, fingering for the, for the piper just because uh, it's easier for what no matter what instrument our ha hands are touching it might be easier to just keep thinking the same way <laughs> that's right yeah and some people may enjoy the challenge of of uh reading in the actual sounding key that you're yeah. playing in but in the orchestral and and uh, concert band uh worlds uh there are plenty of transposing instruments and it's for that same reason so that you can swap instruments um and sound in a different key or in a different register, but you don't have to relearn, reassign different notes to the same fingering patterns yeah. or vice versa. Well, Tim, if it's okay with you, I see a track that I want to pull in right now, just since we've been talking about the Sea Chanter, um, Kilmarnock. That's, mm -hmm. that's one of my favorite melodies that I've ever encountered anywhere. It, it comes up in your, in your hymn collection. And here... Wow. Now I'm I'm suddenly having like a like a you know a, a, my brain is suddenly melting a little bit. This this is correct me if I'm wrong because now I'm like wait was that on Piper in the Holler? This is where we've got the words to Amazing Grace, right? Correct. Amazing Grace with the uh, with New Britain, all my life, and so maybe it's just that it's different that's exciting. Yep. Because and that may be a big part of it. But this is just, I mean, and also it's Pete singing, you know, and Pete's got a great yep. voice. Yep. Um. But then also the small pipes are in C, and so even though I hadn't realized that before, maybe that's part of what's making this, you know, really really tickle the inside of my ears. But I love this track so much. Well, uh, well, thanks. And uh, almost all credit goes to Pete for this one. Um, I did introduce the original Scottish hymn tune to him. Um, and he very quickly just created his own version of it. This particular melody is really pretty much 100% Pete Sutherland in terms of the Appalachification of it, mm. to use that word again. Mm. Um, 
and that happened very organically, very quickly. He was just messing around with the fiddle, and and it just it just arrived uh, very quickly. And we we knew this was uh, a gem, uh, almost instantaneously. And uh, but the trick for us then was finding words, finding poetry that we thought was a good fit. Yeah, uh, we didn't like the the poetry that's often uh, paired with the Kilmarnock hymn tune in in the church, your standard church hymnal mm. as much. We were looking at secular options and Pete was looking at, you know, had a, had a collection of poetry of, uh, I think some Appalachian lyrics and whatnot that he was trying various ones out and, and none of them clicked, but we went back to that first day when he was messing around with this tune and just utterly spontaneously, just to try singing it, he just thought, oh, well, Amazing Grace will fit this. Let's just Mm, try those as a placeholder huh exactly just to sing it for now yeah. but we never found anything we liked better than that and um yeah. it can be really fun to take a really really well-known lyric or melody yeah. and and swap it out with something a different pairing um yeah. and church church hymnals and shape note hymnals have indices for this in the back for this very purpose where yeah. they they have the metrics an index of just the metrics the meter of the poetry or of the melody, and you can find a different melody for, you know, you can put away in a manger in it in a, to a totally different melody, and it can be really refreshing to do that and bring, it brings the poetry to life or brings a, a stale melody to life if you put new poetry to it. Right, yeah, it makes you think about either one of them in different ways. And, and I wonder, you know, again, far be it for me to pass judgment, but I wonder if I'm sure this would still have been pleasant no matter what the lyrics were, but I wonder if it would have quite been the same kind of magic that it is if it had had lyrics that were unfamiliar to the listener. You know, maybe with so yep. many other things about it being unfamiliar, maybe having that one connection that, like, I've heard these words so many times, but this is different. Maybe that's part of what makes them lean in, you know? Yep. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think you're absolutely right there. And it is, um, and it's fun to sing it, too. And uh, we... we all three of us at some point are singing on that kind of like the session idea where we join in bit by bit. Cause we're sort of just drawn into it, drawn mm -hmm. into participating. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That makes me want to ask you about a little bit more about the process of how these, is it the same process for every track or is it totally unique? Because listening to um, track eight, for example, that goes farewell, uh, farewell to Dundee into Babe of Bethlehem makes mm -hmm. it to me listening to it. It sounded like, Brad was like, hey, guys, here's a tune I like, and he started playing it. And then mm -hmm. Pete was like, yeah, that sounds kind of nice, and then kind of joined in. And then you, sitting there kind of fingering along quietly, finally felt like, oh, okay, now I think I can come in here, and then came in. It felt like it felt like a, a, it felt like an organic jam session mm -hmm. that built in a way. Um, and I, I'm sure that that's not the case for all the tunes, but it, was that the case for, for this set or for some? Uh, well, I'm, I, you have such a good... Uh good visions about these tunes and I, I'm afraid the truth is, is maybe a lot less exciting, but <laughs> let, me, let me pull some more books off the shelf and read you like some Tolkien poetry and be like, Oh, hey, please. Sure, surely this, this inspired, right? Oh my gosh. I don't mean to set you up like that, Tim. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's so much more fun. Uh, well, we can hold the, we can hold both options. Yeah. Um, and, and I can just say that, uh, my memory of the, of which could be, uh, now skewed and false. Uh, so maybe what you're imagining is the truth. Um, Pete write a rebuttal. And Pete will write his rebuttal and we'll never know what yeah. happened. Um, uh, when I was actually working on the uh, the collection of Christmas carols, mm -hmm. uh, the On This Day 
uh, Earthshell Ring collection. Um, I let, let, let me just plug that real quick. It's great. I'll put a link to that in the description as well. Very, very excellent collection. Well, thank you. And we have we have chatted about that we on have, your podcast yes, sir, yeah. uh, a while back. So one of the carols featured in there is this carol called um, "Babe of Bethlehem," and uh, or it's a shape note hymn, but but certainly works as a as a carol. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, somehow in that in the years that I was slowly, very slowly piecing that that collection together, I stumbled across a lute, a Scottish lute tune called Adieu Dundee. Adieu spelled A-D-E-W, which is not the correct French spelling for adieu, but mm-hmm. uh, good enough, you get the idea. Um, and that that was um, published sometime in the early 1600s, um, uh, either by or for Sir John Skeen of Halyard's Castle. Um, and that was later transcribed and, and anyway, it had been passed around. But that tune, that lute tune is... When I stumbled across that, I thought, oh, my gosh, that is absolutely the predecessor to Babe of Bethlehem. Mm-hmm. Somehow that went from the sixteen, the 17th century Scottish lute tune over to this American shape note hymn. Mm-hmm. They're uncannily similar. Yeah. So much so that we had a lot of problems uh, uh, rehearsing and even recording these two back to back because they're so similar. We would get confused as to what tune we were actually playing. Mm-hmm. Um, so this track is, uh, to me, um, we didn't do much tweaking at all to either melody. Uh, we just took what already existed and just showed what kind of happened naturally already uh, here in the U.S. between a oh, Scottish tune yeah. coming over and, and becoming Appalachified in its own way, in its own timing, well before we were ever alive, any yeah. of us. See, I, I, I had assumed that it was two, two very distinct and yet similar enough tunes that we're just flowing one into the other. But so it's almost like you took me on a chronological journey musically. Uh, Perhaps that's my theory. We may never know. Um, It's, it's conceivable that uh, William Walker uh, in his, his uh, Southern harmony uh, hymnal of shape note hymns Mm -hmm. just invented a melody that happened to be really similar to this Mm -hmm. one, but Mm -hmm. they're, they're pretty, it's a pretty unique melody. Um, And, uh, I I feel pretty convinced that that one grew out of the other. Thank you. 
now, now dragging you back over to your hardware, um, could you tell me a little bit about border pipes and why they're not small pipes? Sure. Uh, the the biggest difference that you're you're experiencing as a listener uh, and as a player too is that the bore, the 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 internal bore of the chanter is um, conical. Mm-hmm. So it's cone shaped. It gets wider as the chanter goes down. It's the same with the Highland pipes. Also, the reed is a little smaller and thinner bladed. The, the blades are actually a little thinner. Mm. And that combination, uh, and maybe I should add in slightly larger uh, sound holes too. The finger holes are a little bit larger than for small pipes. That combination creates a, um, a chanter that sounds an octave higher than your standard small pipe chanter. And with a tone that's a little bit more, uh, I describe it as it having an impish sneer an impish of sorts. Sneer, I like that. Yeah, I can hear that. <laughs> uh, it's also sweeter in a way, sweeter than the Highland pipes, yeah. maybe just because it's a little quieter. Okay. The other really interesting thing about um, conical chanters, including the Highland pipes, is that you can do cross fingerings on them and um, get more notes than you can normally get on a small pipe. Yeah, that's... So, um... Jeremy again over at Way Too Twags Bagpiping History Podcast. He's been experimenting with um with his Highland pipes as well as some border pipes to not only do cross fingering for accidentals but to push the range up, which yes. I didn't even know was all I like. I, I had an idea that you could get up to a B, but he's been getting up to a C and even a D sometimes. Wow! And I understand that this actually has plenty of historical precedent. It's almost like we've forgotten how to do it. Yeah, I think uh, you know a lot of the border uh, border tunes often feature a high B or or higher. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, it's something that's happened in the woodwind family of instruments and has been happening for a long time. And we're among the only ones not generally doing it is that overblowing. Yeah. Um, the hard thing with pipes is that the reed is not in contact with our mouth. We cannot manipulate the reed with our mouth, with our embouchure, which a clarinetist can do an oboist sax saxophonist, all of those guys, uh, and gals and, Everyone can manipulate the reed with their mouth as they overblow. Yeah. Um, and they can have more control over the tuning and the tone that way. Well, we in can... those cases, they're not throwing their drones off by doing so either. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and Illin pipes also do some of this, and a lot of it is bag pressure related, but I gather it's not quite that simple of just mm. squeezing harder. Uh, but that is definitely a part of it. And they, they have a nearly two octave range. But again, the tuning can start to suffer as they go up higher, and, and the tone yeah. perhaps as well. Yeah. So, so this this border border pipes themselves in, as an instrument and the tradition of music are both things that are fairly new to me that I've really been enjoying. Um, I, I dropped a heavy hint to my wife, and and luckily for Christmas, got a, a collection that Matt Seattle put together called the Master Piper. Oh, um, it's a great one. Yes, yeah, I love that. It's been a lot of fun to start looking through, and it's like this whole another little little tradition that was just tucked in the middle of traditions that I thought I was familiar to, you know, and mm-hmm. I had no idea this one was there all along. Mm-hmm. Um, so I find this stuff exciting. Who, who makes your pipes? I know I asked you a bit about this when we were talking about the Christmas collection, but the ones that you were using on this, on this collection, uh, if, 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 as long as you're okay calling out sure. the makers. Oh yeah. Happily. Um, I, I hope they're okay with me doing it and sure. not like, oh my God. <laughs> I doubt they'd be <laughs> Like, oh, I don't uh, want to be associated with this. <laughs> who knows? Uh, I'm, I'm not going to assume anything. So I have a, a kind of uh, hybrid instruments at the, at the moment. Yeah. Um, the, the first Bellows pipes I ever owned were a set of border pipes uh, made by um, 
the Garvey Garvey pipes. Um, yeah. Nigel over in Edinburgh, who who uh, died not that long ago, maybe a year ago or so. Mm-hmm. Um, excellent set of border pipes, um, but it is hard to um, get repairs done or uh, or tweaks done or reeds modified when you're on the other side of an ocean. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, that reality paired with getting to know pipe makers here on this side of, of the Atlantic, uh, some very talented pipe makers, uh, has led to that set of border pipes gradually becoming oh, um, like piece by piece. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. the chanter, Will Woodson and Nate Banton made uh, the chanter I've been using for the past oh, five, four or five years now. Um, Every time I hear a set of their pipes pop up on YouTube or something, it sounds amazing. I love their work, and I, I love them as people, too. They're, they're really great fellas. I, I honestly had a dream last night that I was playing one of their, what they call their complex sets. Uh-huh. With those super low D drones. Yes, the testosterone, as I like to call it. <laughs> That's a great name for it. <laughs> I don't think they like that term, but I'm sticking with it. <laughs> I wonder, I don't know if I was having, like, cardiac arrhythmia or something at the time, but I swear in my dream I could feel it rumbling in my chest. <laughs> And it was that was a good dream. It was a very oh, I good love dream. it. Oh, I love it. Uh, the contra contra bass drone is is really a treat to hear. I do not own one myself, but I love hearing them, uh, and I have some students who have them. Yeah. So border pipes are now the the chanter uh, made by Will and Nate and uh, drones um, that are still the Garvey drones. But um, I actually Nate is working on a new set of border drones for me. Mm. Uh, And he sent one little drone all by itself to me while this recording was being made because I really wanted a high E border drone for Ah, some of these tracks. Kind of the opposite end of the contrabass, huh? Going all the way up there. That high lonesome. Yeah. High dronesome sound. High dronesome. Very nice. I like (laughs) that. Sorry. Yeah. (laughs) Coin that. Uh, so, um, that's still in the works, but that's where I'm heading is, is a, is a set of dr- a full set of, um, Banton, uh, Woodson, uh, border pipes. Mm-hmm. The small pipes are entirely Nate Banton, uh, with the exception of the D chanter is, uh, one that Hamish Moore made in the nineties. Um, and I bought that used mm. so that I used that one on. Moonshiner, I think, and at least one other one. Oh, the the title track, The Bird's Flight. Mm. So that's a lovely little D, Blackwood Chanter. Um, no no custom anything on that one. The other chanters all have now custom high B keys or the equivalent of a high B. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you about were the, the those, those sneaky notes that you pop in there that I go, wait a minute. <laughs> I, yeah. I can't do that. Where'd that come from? <laughs> yeah, I... Uh, having played clarinet for a number of years uh, as a as a teenager and in college, having that one little extra note there, uh, and hearing the fiddlers do that in in so many different genres—Irish, Appalachian, and sometimes Scottish—it's mm-hmm. just a very it's a very seductive note, and often yeah. not necessary, but uh, it can be very pleasing to, to mm-hmm. just kind of have that one little extra peak yeah. uh, there. Well, it feels it feels so much like it's it's like the low G, you know, like I, I might not use it all that often for the melody, but darn it if it's not useful for embellishments. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, and when you do use it, it's a very special moment, too. Yeah. So I'm not going back uh, probably to 
uh, not having that key. I, I'm making good use of those. I think I'm making good use. I'm trying to and, and enjoying it anyway. The other uh, custom feature is a a thumb hole for my lower thumb, my right thumb, that's kind of behind the B and the C. Uh, oh, um, yeah, yeah. So with that, if you finger a standard B but lift your lower thumb off at the same time, you get a C natural mm -hmm. or the equivalent, depending on what key you're in. So the A chanter, A small pipe chanter, and the uh, C small pipe chanter, both made by Nate, have that high key, the high B key, and the low C natural thumb hole. Yeah. Uh, which I enjoy all of having that, that extra freedom or to explore other modalities or, or wider melodies. Um, mm. that I, I don't think I'm, I'm going back. Yeah. I, I haven't been, um, I haven't been, uh, uh, headstrong or, or reckless enough to do it myself yet, but I have asked a couple of, uh, nearby, um, one pipe maker and also just people who I know who own drill presses about just drilling me a hole. Like if I can just find about where that C natural should be, yep. just drill me a nice big one and I'll tape it till it fits. <laughs> yeah. Um, I wonder if Nate would, uh, has already posted somewhere on Instagram or Facebook, maybe just, just his, you know, the dimensions for, or the measurements for where he, he mm. puts that. And I don't yeah. think he's the only one. I think Rob Felsberg in Pittsburgh is also, uh, uh, adding that to some of his chanters, mm -hmm. possibly by request or, or maybe not. The nice thing is, is if you uh, if you don't like it uh, and if you're not using it, you can just put a piece of tape over the entire hole and not ever have to think about it. Yeah, just tape right over it. And it doesn't affect the tuning or tone of, of other, other notes having that hole there. So. Hello, friends. I'll be quick so you can get back to this awesome episode. I hope that you're enjoying listening to it half as much as I enjoyed uh, doing the interview. Uh, Tim's an awesome guy, and he's made some awesome music. If you haven't already uh, hopped over to his website or Bandcamp or somewhere where you can buy a copy of this album, I'm sure you're going to need to do that by the end of the interview because it is such an excellent collection of music, and we don't get through all the tracks here. And so uh, I couldn't recommend it enough. There's uh, There will be links in the show notes below if you want. Uh, but Googling around, you'll probably find it. And if you want to support the show, of course, we've got a Patreon account. So you can go to patreon.com slash droningonpodcast. And we do regular drawings for patrons. Uh, this month, the drawing is going to be the, the prize for the, the winner that comes out of that, uh, that uh, uh, metaphorical hat. Uh, we'll get a copy of this album, uh, The Bird's Flight. So a uh, physical copy of the album, I'll send it to you. I'll probably tuck some cool stickers or something into it as well for you. Um, so if you want a chance at winning that, just hop over to Patreon if you're not already there and pledge some money. It doesn't have to be a lot. It can be a little. Oh, I mean, it can be a lot if you want it to be a lot. I won't, I won't say that that's a bad thing. But, uh, you know, even if you only subscribe for, for one month and then cancel it just to see if you don't uh, find yourself the lucky winner of the album, I would not be offended. It's a great, great collection of tracks. Um, and if you feel so inclined, I do invite you to follow the show on Facebook. It's a fun way to interact with each other, talk about past episodes. Um, I like to get on there and ask for advice for upcoming episodes, questions you might like to ask, uh, interviewees, that kind of stuff. So that's just on uh, Facebook. You can just search for Droning On Podcast. Um, it's uh, uh, also on Instagram, the show is. If that's more your thing, that's just droning.on.podcast. And uh, you can always email the show at uh, thedroningonpodcast at gmail.com. 
links to all this stuff are in the show notes. Uh, so that's it. Get on back to this interview. Uh, and uh, thanks again for listening. Bye-bye. So speaking of, of tuning and tone, what was it that you did to which set of pipes for Briar Rock and uh, Geese and the Clover and Come Along Billy? Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah, so those uh, that track is in the key of, of G, uh, which is not a particular native uh, key for us when we're playing on a on an A chanter. Yeah, uh, which I was doing. Speaking of not using the low G in in the melody, right? Like, well, go ahead and prove me wrong, Tim. <laughs> well, this is this? <laughs> right, and this is a very uh, it's still kind of a foreign experience to me to play in that key because yeah. uh, for decades I've never never played in the key of G on a bagpipe. Yeah. Um, so suddenly, where you're used to the low A fingering pattern or maybe the D fingering pattern being your home base note. Right. That's where you land on. That's where you're centered on. That's your anchor. Suddenly it's your pinky um, and everything is shifted. All those melodic patterns, you're so used to certain melodic patterns, all of those are now shifted a note down. Yeah. And it's um, it takes a little getting used to. The other problem comes down to uh, a pretty uh, heady topic uh um, far, far more involved than you'll want to get into into this in this discussion, but it gets into the the realm of temperament, mm. um, where we're talking about very fine tuning, but it, it really can make quite a difference in what you're experiencing musically. Mm-hmm. Um, on most Scottish pipe chanters, the low G is actually very flat compared to what you would find on a on a typical Western instrument like a an equal-tempered piano or organ. Mm. Um, RGs are, even if you tune your A perfectly to that organ, RGs are generally going to be very flat comparatively. Yeah. And there's a whole reason for that. It involves how we tune each individual note of our chanter to the harmonics in our drones. And those harmonics are naturally not equal-tempered, uh, just the way the, the, the physics of sound works. Mm. So when you now base yourself in that key of G, you have a you have an issue that uh, you're now basing your your a whole tune on a note that's flat. Yeah, yeah. compared well, to other instruments. Else will sound off, right? So uh, that either means that you have to make your whole chanter much sharper to get that G in tune, mm. uh, and then you flatten all the other notes with the tape considerably. Yeah, uh, or um, you have a chanter specially made so that the G is more a more standard tuning to Western instruments, Basically or you, you actually that hole up higher, right? Exactly. Or in my case, uh, I'm, Nate will not be too happy about this, but he knows. Did you it. carve it out? I have carved it. I have done some carving a little bit, but I also asked him to kind of uh, compromise a little bit in advance. Um, you took a Dremel to the holy relic, Tim. You know, uh, <laughs> it's scary. Uh, yeah, I'm but sure, if you're careful, I'm sure that made you nervous. Yeah. <coughs> uh, it 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 uh, for me, I, it it made me much more comfortable playing in that key, mm. or you know, in my other trio playing with Jeremiah and Alex. Jeremiah has a um, an accordion that is has 300 reeds, and he's not going to retune those <laughs> no, for me. I can't imagine he would. No, <laughs> um, and they're equal tempered. So if I want to be fairly in tune with him on certain notes and then certain keys, I have to be closer to equal tempered. And I may not get all the way there, but I like to get at least partway there. And and, uh, it's it's a more comfortable listening experience and playing too. 
Well, it certainly um, serves the purpose. I mean, the track is lovely. What, but what about drones? What do you do with drones for that track? Aha, also a good question. Um, I have drones uh, for, I think most pipes are capable of this, uh, most instruments, um, bellows versions, uh, small pipes and border pipes. Most drones, you can usually get two different notes out of them. Mm -hmm. uh, you get the standard A or E as the baritone drone, and then you can either go, depending on how it's configured, you can either go up, the A's can go up to B, or they can go down to G. Mm. There's usually some enough room to play there. Um, or you may have to manipulate the reed a little bit. Here's Likewise, the, around, right? yes, genetic modification that way for yeah. sure, um, which I've also done and had to do for this album too. So I moved, um, I think the way my small pipes are configured, the tenor drone can do both an A and a G. So I just move that A drone down to a G. Mm. And the alto drone can do both a D and an E, and I, I left it at D there. Mm -hmm. So I had an open fifth, the GD uh, combination to really lock that tonality in. Gotcha. Well, I mean... I, 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 I flatter myself by thinking that I'm not the only one who wants to know those kinds of details. So I'd imagine that the last few minutes have been as interesting to, to, look like <laughs> to me. Perhaps I'm mistaken, but I think that that's exactly like, you know, as Pipers, we look and we go, now what is, what's he playing? What's the setup? You know, what's going on there? So. Yeah. Oh, we, ha we have to geek out on Gear Talk for sure. Right, yeah. touched on embellishments you mm -hmm. know and how um you know these aren't you're not playing your standard like competition circle embellishments on this album do you feel like at this point you've um kind of done it enough that you could almost even write down a list of uh appalachia embellishments you know what i mean like you know there's a special set that are for Peabrook. there's a special set for 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 competition maybe there's a special set that's solidifying in your mind and in your playing for this uh for this genre that's a really good question. I, um, at this point, I'm using, uh, for the most part, uh, great single grace notes, by and large, that are endemic to Scottish-style piping, mm -hmm. but I'm just putting them in different places or using them a little bit differently mm -hmm. um, and um, relying a lot on the E grace note and D grace note more than the high G in, in some cases. Um, partly, I just like the sound of it and... 
It also kind of, in some ways, mimics the higher drone of a banjo or the or the droney string of um, an open string on the fiddle. Mm. Certain notes, the fiddle's more inclined to have a, um, a, an open D or an open E string available, and same with the banjo, than, say, a, a, a G natural or something mm. like that. Mm-hmm. Although, no, they have those too, but they tend not to drone them as much, certainly sure. not on the, and not in these keys. So... Yeah. Uh, it just felt more harmonic to me or sounded more Southern when I played e, more E grace notes and more D grace notes yeah. and using them as a, as a kind of a, a rhythm section effect right. at times. That, that offbeat thing you were mentioning, right? The chuck, the boom yeah. chuck, the chuck of the boom chuck. Um, so if you, uh, if you listen to um, people playing the banjo uh, in the claw hammer style or people playing the fiddle in the, in the old time Appalachian style, there's a huge emphasis on the, on the offbeat, mm-hmm. not for every single measure, but a lot. Mm-hmm. It's very prominent and it's very pronounced. And, and um, I think that probably comes from the influence of the enslaved Africans, their traditions that they brought over. Those those kind of offbeat rhythms um, adopted by uh, musicians, um, you know, the, the white settlers that had come and that, that influence uh, had a huge influence on, on uh, the music in yeah. Appalachia and, and in the U.S. generally. Um, yeah, so I mean, speaking of that, that, not just the musical form, but on banjos specifically, right? Yeah, I, I happen to have a banjo here. I don't know how well that will come through on the mic. Yeah, but, bring um, it through. Not in great tune. So the the standard pattern, the kind of bum titty bum titty. That's one, two, and three, four, and one, two, and three, four, and and it's not this, the loudest thing you're hearing is actually the what we would normally think of as the weaker beat. If if you learned in a, a conventional way of playing stress bass on the pipes, you learn that the first beat is by far the strongest one. The third beat is the next strongest, and two and four are quite weak. Strong, weak, medium, weak, right? That's exactly it. Yeah. We're turning this on its head for old-time music, for Appalachian music, and doing the opposite. So what I've been trying to train myself to do in the past several years, especially for this project, is to not play grace notes on all the downbeats, mm-hmm. and sometimes, and very often not play anything, any grace note on a, on a strong beat, and instead play them on beats two and four. Mm. And after thirty odd years of piping, that's a very hard thing to yeah to change. You, you um, mentioned the thing. You mentioned that to me once in an email, and I sat down to try to do it, and I still can't do it, Tim. I can't. I can't. I hear it, and it sounds awesome, but I can't get my fingers to do it. It it takes some work. It, it's definitely possible, and uh, it's something I love doing in a workshop setting, uh, getting people to sort of get that groove mm-hmm. and. The way I do that is not something I can easily do in, in this interview um, or remotely necessarily is to have get the pipers uh, uh, playing just that offbeat grace note, tapping their foot on the downbeat, as you do in old time music, mm-hmm. but playing grace notes on the offbeat. So it's tap, grace note, tap, grace note, tap, mm. grace note. And then I play a tune while I keep the student or students just playing that that offbeat grace note Mm -hmm. just droning on a low a for example and playing that grace note Mm -hmm. and that helps them like oh yeah that's the feeling yeah 
And it's sort of that offbeat chuck that you hear mandolins doing in bluegrass music or the banjo, as I just demonstrated. It's so prominent in American music and Appalachian music. So yeah. just isolating the grace note all by itself. And something you could do if you're, if you're really that bored or really that keen is put one of these tracks on on this album or really any Scottish reel you could do and just force yourself to play drone on a low A if the tune is an A, for example. Sure. And play a grace note on the offbeats while you're tapping your foot on the strong beats. Just, it's, just like a simple like high G grace note, just like yeah, tap tap. Yeah, okay, yeah. And this is where I found the E and the D to be a little more uh, harmonizing with the tune and oh sure. And yeah. so I tend to do a higher percentage of those than I normally would in Scottish music. They're a little less piercing too, aren't they? It depends on which bagpipe you're playing. On the border pipe, oh, they're yeah. very quiet. Uh, yeah. It's a quiet note on the border pipe, but much louder on small pipes. Mm -hmm. Now, speaking of the banjo and its history and and coming over with enslaved Africans, um, you've got you've got um, you've got uh, Brad playing a gourd banjo, which mm -hmm. feels like really really calling back to the banjo's origins um, on yeah. the Gregor of Roaring Fork. And you mentioned that you were going to play it until you heard him play it. And so tell me about that. But also, Tim, tell me why it is that so many bagpipers, their secondary instrument is either the accordion or the banjo. Like those, those, these three seem to go together in such a funny, but also really cool way. It is, it is pretty remarkable uh, and troubling. And <laughs> uh, it, it is amazing. But I, I, the accordion obviously has the reedy, they're all related in, in their yeah. own way. The accordion has bellows and it has reeds. Yep. Um, the banjo has a drone, although not much else in common with the pipes that mm -hmm. way. Um, but uh, what I love about the banjo personally is that I can play at different volumes. I can play them very quietly if I choose to. Uh, and it's just a very meditative, especially the claw hammer style is a very meditative pattern. And you can mm -hmm. just kind of get lost in, in a droney rhythmic droniness uh, of sorts yeah. um and of course it makes sense of course if you're a piper playing the banjo you're eventually going to say oh well can you play a bagpipe tune on a banjo yeah, and you just start exploring yeah. and of course it changes the nature of the tune when you put it on a different instrument especially one that that, that is really quite different than the pipes yeah um so that's what i had done with uh the original tune uh, that became McGregor of Roaring Fork, um, and really they're hardly different at all, the original and the current version. Um, and this, I thought, oh, well, this, you know, I can play this pretty well on the banjo. I've actually played this publicly before, and, and yeah, why don't I just, I'll, I'll record this. I'll, I'll do this and just have my own little banjo feature. I was kind of hoarding this tune. I found a really cool tuning. Uh, I didn't invent it. It, it, it obviously exists, but I found that this particular tuning really suited this tune really well. And I thought, oh, yeah, this is my discovery or something. I've just felt very proud of it and very, uh, I was very much hoarding the tune and not yeah. wanting anyone else to have it. Uh, and then I heard Brad play in person once and I'm like, well, who am I kidding? This is <laughs> <laughs> the balloon popped. Huh? <laughs> it, it was a, oh, a violent burst of reality and uh brad is so terrific and then then he has the gourd banjo option uh yeah. that's fretless um that's impressive i i hadn't realized that the neck was fretless wow it's fretless he's a really gifted musician and, and uh 
Uh, it was a kind of a strange tune for him, I think. It's so angular. Uh, a lot of Scottish tunes are, and it, it wasn't immediately an, an obvious... The, the melodic pattern wasn't really that uh, typically Southern, um, uh, but he, of course, picked it up very quickly nonetheless and, and put his own fingerprints on it uh, yeah. that are way better than anything I would have done. But he retained the tuning pattern that I really wanted, um, and I'm so glad he agreed to, to, to play it and record it. Which is a funky t- tuning pattern. For anybody who plays guitar, they're probably going to be familiar with drop D tuning. This is like drop everything tuning. Like you, you move yeah. everything around. <laughs> well, and what's really what I so love about it is uh, often there's a, a very common tuning on the banjo called mountain minor. I think you actually have to leave one of those one of those strings untuned for to, for the mountain in the mountain minor to be accurate. <laughs> uh, trust me, it's not ever going to be in tune. But, uh, you can edit this part. No, no so problem. usually in the mountain minor tuning, you have uh, A D uh, G and back to A. And the drone would be another A. Yeah. Oh, sorry, no, an E. Oh, okay. Um, so, I think when I originally tried this tune, that's the common drone string. It's very harmonic, a very obvious drone note for yeah. a tune that's an A. However... Having heard the odd banjo player, namely Pete Sutherland being one of them, playing in this tuning, where the drone is actually the seventh, that would be like tuning one of our drones to our high G yeah. on a channer. Exactly, but listen. There's this unsettledness to it, but it's really quite a beautiful... Right, that sounds so nice. <laughs> a really beautiful effect. Yeah. Uh, and once I put that tuning with that tune, I thought, well, this is gold. Uh, yeah. And then you hand it over to Brad, and, and uh, that is my absolute favorite track on the album, is that, that particular mm. one. Mm. And the gourd banjo just has its own resonance and, and rusticness to it, and the yeah. fretless aspect, too, is just really, really pretty. Yeah, and, and impressive, my goodness. I remember yeah. watching a fretless bass player play with Paul Simon and just, just how, how, such accuracy. Man, I know. It's just amazing. I know, yeah, it's a, it's a wonder. Um, so, Tim, I, um, I told you in the lead up to doing this interview that like, it would be hard for me to not talk for a long time about every single track. I'm trying to hold back a little bit here because I am taking a lot of your time and, and once I've added tracks in, this is going to be a long episode. Um, so maybe we start looking for home, a place to land. Uh, any other yep. tracks or aspects you'd like to talk about before we before we do come to an end? It could just be the the title track in in a way. That, that's um, kind of where I was hoping we could land too. Maybe even that Pete Seeger quote, you know, the why you why you named the album this and stuff like that too. Yeah, exactly. Um, so here's where I may uh, divulge the the origin tune for this one, which was. Um, the Desperate Battle, uh, Pibroch. Uh, 
any Highland Piper who has played any Peabrock will know this, the melody that, that became this waltz, mm-hmm. and will know that it came from that, that Peabrock. Uh, we hardly changed any notes from that. Uh, we, just, we just added some rhythm, some waltz rhythm to it, essentially, and mm-hmm. a few little, few little changes. Um, so the Desperate Battle is also known as the Desperate Battle of the Birds, or sometimes just the Birds Fight. Um, which we think is a mistranslation of the original Gaelic uh, in that it originally had nothing to do with birds, Mm -hmm. but actually a town name that that is similar to the word for birds in Gaelic, Mm -hmm. in Scots Gaelic. Um, But people may want to double-check that. That may be inaccurate, but um, that's my understanding at this moment anyway. Well, it serves the purposes at hand, though, doesn't it? (laughs) Yes, and uh, exactly, and I thought, well, I, I... this. The, the mood, the emotion of this tune in no way resembles in, in its current waltz form, in the Appalachian style form, in no way resembles any violence at all, mm-hmm. any desperation or any battle, any, any birds duking it out or anything. Um, so I just thought, what's a really close title uh, that might better match the feeling of this tune? And, and uh, the bird's flight was fairly obvious contender. Um, Pete and Brad seem to like that. It's a very simple, uh, no frills title, but, um, it, it links to the original tune, but also has conveys the, this, the overarching, uh, thesis of this particular project, which is tunes migrate, migrating, basically, mm-hmm. um, coming over the Atlantic in one way or another, and and setting up a new nest, a new home somewhere, and having the influences of the new, the new land, the new cultures, the new landscapes, uh, all affect uh, that bird uh, and and what it becomes and how it lives. So, uh, this tune really does largely encapsulate that a Scottish pibroch tune becoming a, a waltz of the southern, in the style of of a southern tune of an Appalachian tune, maybe. Yeah. Um, with a fiddle being played in a very southern way and a gourd banjo, uh, and then we throw in the pipes. The pipes come in partway through. Yeah. Uh, and, um, yeah, we, we enjoyed putting this track together, and, and uh, it seemed like a fitting contender to be the title track as well. Yeah. Oh, lovely. And that's probably the perfect spot to fade in the next. 